if systems continue becoming that powerful and that capable, we might not want them to be out there in the wild. To make sense of the hardware that's powering the explosion in AI capabilities, I have on Leonard Heim today. He's a researcher at the Center for the Governance of AI, also the author of a fantastic AI compute syllabus primer, which I just spent the past few weeks obsessed uh, and now feel like a smart person all of a sudden. Um, Co-hosting with me today is Chris Miller, author of the recent FT Business Book of the Year, Chip Wars. Leonard, welcome to China Talk. Thanks for having me. So what is compute? I think basically, usually when I talk about computer, I mean something just around computing infrastructure, computing resources, right? And then it's like this vague thing where we're pointing to basically the thing which we as a civilization have been built over the last, yeah, what is it now? 100 years we're trying to, um, from processors to memory to more specialized stuff like GPUs in general, like those clunky things which are sometimes in your pocket, but also those things which fill up whole, whole data uh, warehouses, what we call data centers. So like, yeah, I think computing infrastructure is a, is a good term to go for to describe compute. So there's this concept of an AI triad, which um, I guess, can we say popularized by Ben, U ben Buchanan now on the NSC? Um, the idea that data algorithms and compute are the three sort of inputs that you need in order to have a flourishing sort of product as well as, uh, you know, one level of abstraction up like national economic AI innovation system. Um, is it already baked in today just the, the sort of like relationship of relative importance between those three? Oh, yeah, I think, I think the debate is not settled on this one yet. So I also like the term AI production function, where you're just basically asking yourself, well, we have AI systems which get created, and what are like the inputs into those systems? And then, then you have people who don't have a computer science background who try to like try to simplify this. And like, as you just said, compute algorithms and data is like one way of going about it. And now the question is like, what is the most important of those? Um, I, guess, I guess it depends who you ask, right? Um, I think one thing we can say over time, and of course me, we're focusing on compute. I'm claiming compute is pretty important and plays like a pretty important role. Um, and somebody should be focusing on it, even if it's just, just a third, third of the production function, if we can say so. And in particular, if we look at like one sub-field like sub of AI, which is machine learning, compute plays like a really major role. And lastly, it's, it's a necessary component, right? We cannot do AI stuff without processors, without compute. The question is like, how much do we need of it, right? Is your smartphone in your pocket sufficient or do you actually need like a whole warehouse out of it? And the answer for machine learning is both, depends on what you're doing. Sure. So what are sort of like, what are the range? Can people even say today the sort of like range of futures in which actually you need giant server farms with, you know, millions, if not billions of these chips? Or um, is there a world in which the sort of algorithms and data get so good that compute actually isn't really going to be a limiting factor on how good AI can get. Yeah, I think, I think it's important there to basically ask yourself a question like, what are we doing? Where are we like in the AI life cycle and the machine learning life cycle? And what we can say is like when we train a system, right? When you like design like those neural network architectures and you show them a picture of a cat and you tell them this is a cat and the system tries to learn it. Um, given that we do this with like millions of examples, it's like really, really important. I think it's important when we think about like the compute requirements of AI systems to like look at the life cycle where we are with systems, right? So you, you have AI 
stuff running on your smartphone right now, be it Siri, be it Google Assistant. And like they're even trying to push it further that it completely runs on your smartphone and not on Google's or Apple's server for privacy-preserving reasons, right? Um, the difference is there, those systems have been trained once, right? We showed them like dozens and millions hours of speech examples to be trained. And this usually gets done in data centers. And then we talk about warehouses of compute. Um, but yeah, there is like a strong interest to actually deploy systems on your smartphone. We have this for voice assistants, but if you look at like newer systems, um, you mentioned ChatGPT. Well, this runs somewhere in Microsoft Azure in big data centers because it needs a lot of compute, even for inference. And it needs a lot of compute because I think this had something around a million users per day. So if you have a million users per day, um, yeah, you actually want to serve it to them. You have like quick latency and then you run it on data centers. They also tend to be more efficient. So what's the right way to think about productivity of the, of the, different, the, the different aspects of the triad, compute, data, um, algorithms? I mean, we got the concept of Moore's law in terms of computing power. Um, how, how would you measure productivity of, of algorithms or productivity of data changing over time? Yeah, there's actually some pretty good research on this, right? Um, so we, we once did a paper where we just basically looked at like all of the cutting edge ML systems and asked ourselves like how, well, how much compute, how much operations, how much flop slotting point operations do we need for training those systems and trying to plot this and like see what happened there. And what we saw that's like, oh, it doubled like every six months over the last 10 years. And that's like huge, right? Because if we compare this to Moore's law, it's only been doubling like every two years, like the original Moore's law. Um, if we then try to find the same out with algorithmic efficiency or data, it gets way harder. Um, we actually, so like, I'm also helping out with an organization which is called Epoch, where we actually also took a look at data trends, where we like try to investigate this, how much data is doubling. Um, and the same for algorithmic efficiency. Um, with data, it's like debatable. You have like lots of different dimensions, right? If you just think about like you have 10,000 pictures, if it's 10,000 pictures of the same cat, it's not like as useful as 10,000 pictures of a different cat from different angles or different ratios, right? So there's like this, this quality angle, this quality spectrum to data. There's also like a, a bias spectrum to it, right? Depending on which data you feed it. I think it's like a discussion which we have a lot right now. The data sets on the internet are biased in certain ways. And so do the machine learning systems reproduce the same biases. Um, one way how to think about algorithmic efficiency is just basically asking ourselves, do we get the same performance for less compute? Then we made algorithmic efficiency, right? Um, and there's like also just a way of measuring it. There's like a blog post from OpenAI called AI and Efficiency. And my, my colleague Tamai, they just recently published a paper where they took a look at ImageNet and tried to figure this out. And they actually found out that just like the progress of algorithmic efficiency has been as important roughly, at least for image recognition, as in compute which is like kind of interesting, right? Because a bunch of people have always been saying like, well, it's only compute, it's only scaling all you need. But actually, while we scale those systems, we've also been making better algorithms, which make more use out of the compute. And we also get more data sets, like all of those things are scaling at the same time. But I think it's like really important to get like more research going uh, to actually figure this out. I think there's like still, still lots to learn. What are the inputs to, to more efficient algorithms? Obviously you need smart people designing smart algorithms, but, but beyond that, yeah. if, if the inputs to, to to more advanced semiconductors are better machine tools and better processes. How do you think about the inputs to better algorithms? Yeah, I think, I think naively you can just say talent. This is like naively the input. You just like need better people making better algorithms. The question is like how much you push them for it, right? I mean, there's like this thing in software engineering where people just like, there's like this term bloatware where like our software just became more bloaty, less efficient over time because just processors became so good. That was like not really, you don't really need to, right? Um, so like if your software is like not fast enough right now, you just wait two years and then it's going to be fine, right? Because we have like nice Moore's law pushing across the edge. 
So I guess if, if Moore's laws and like computing progress, or like the computing price performance goes down, there might be more push towards um, like having more efficient systems, right? On the other side, we see it already right now. If you train systems and you spend like literally single to two digit millions on a training run for those systems, making a systems 10 times 10% more efficient, right? Like 10 10 10% less compute, that saves you a lot of money, right? And this is like in general, like in the interest of every business. Well, it doesn't save you that much money though. Um... I mean, what's what's interesting to me is like the the sort of balance between open and closed in in improving algorithms. You know what what you saw over you know OpenAI, they got a great team. They have like you know dozens of engineers, um, which is very different. And I'm sure there are some of the smartest folks out there, but it's very different than what you saw happen to Stable Diffusion when it was released, where you know you all of a sudden had the entire internet. Um, sort of working through uh, sort of improvements to the um, uh, to the model, and then all of a sudden, like fast forward a few months, and like you can run it on an iPhone, um, which is just something that I think there's like a real power in having this um, these sorts of uh, sort of algorithmic innovations be open sourced in a way where it'll be really interesting to see if the sort of um, you know monetary edge of the open AIs and deep minds of the world not having necessarily to care about, you know, that spending a, mil- a million or two dollars more or less on their training run, as opposed to sort of like competing against whatever open source model, which may be a little more cash constrained, but will have far more sort of brains on the project trying to tweak what um, goes into the training and inference. Yeah, that, that seems roughly right. I think it's like still important to differentiate that with just like the training of stable diffusion, right? Like to my understanding, I don't know how many people were like in the core team of standing stable diffusion. I guess it was not the whole world. And like, I'm not even sure how much of this whole stake is like open source. I guess most of it. But if you actually would check like into GitHub and the commits, you might actually see like it's only a team of 10 people or something along yeah. these lines to actually deploy it. I think what we see in there, like once they released it, everybody wanted to run it locally on the computer, right? And this was like an exciting thing where like people actually pushing this. I think even just Apple just released something to make Stable Diffusion run locally on your yeah. MacBook M1 Airs. And that's like pretty exciting, right? Where they're just like trying to run this more efficient. But again, this is inference. This needs orders of magnitude less compute. You cannot train those systems on your laptop. You would probably wait until the heat death of the universe before this gets done. Uh, so are we running out of compute, Leonard? <laughs> yeah. Um, Tough question. Probably probably not. I think the question is more like, do we want to stop spending on compute? So what we've seen so far, I think I just mentioned it. If we look at training ML systems, how much compute we use to train ML systems, this has been doubling like every six months. Like according to an analysis, which is like from 2020, was doubling every three months. So it leveled a bit off, right? Um, something doubling every six months. I think we also remember from COVID, you know, exponential growth is like a pretty big deal and it cannot continue forever. Um, and the reason why we could double every single time because we had something like Moore's Law happening. And I, I like roughly describe Moore's Law as something of just like the price performance doubles every two years, right? So we get more compute, more flops um, every two years. But if something only doubles every two years and the other thing doubles every six months, you can just basically only enable it with more spending, right? And this is what we've seen. We're spending like way more money, like way more compute infrastructure to do to train those systems. Um, and I think there was, there was like a report by our folks from CSET, the Center for Security and Emerging Technology, where they're just trying to extrapolate this. And they had like some, some assumptions around like computing doesn't get better. And we can just see this 
doesn't can continue forever. At some point, we had like limits where like training assistant costs a billion or like 1% of the US GDP. Um, are we willing to spend 1% on US GDP on training one model right now? I don't think so. Yeah, but what if it's so sick? What if it's just the sickest model learner? Maybe, maybe we'll spend 1%. I like maybe 10%, yeah. you know, then I was starting to become like a bit skeptical to actually do it. I think we need like, need to see more progress. I, I was facetious, but like, I mean, there is a world in which whatever this is turns into a Manhattan project and you end up needing sort of that level of tens of right. billions of dollars of government support that the private sector isn't going to get there. So maybe, Leonard, sort of like talk us through like the world in which that is the thing that nations need to do to compete? Wait, and I, I would just add before that, you know, a billion dollars isn't that much for big tech firms. Uh, you know, that, that's a totally viable amount of spending. <laughs> yeah, maybe like a billion dollars, like on the horizon, right? If you just like extrapolate this trend, like I, I once estimated the cost of Palm, which was like, it's the biggest model um, to the current state, which is like a language model from Google. And like training this on their own cloud resources, if I would need to pay for it, right? Of course, they get it cheaper. It was like roughly nine to 12 or 14 million, just like paying for this. And this is just training, right? This is just like one shot, you get it right. You still need to deploy it, which costs a lot of money. Um, and you still need to play around with it and like develop it and like actually have like some hits and misses there, right? You're lucky if you get it done there. Um, the world where we spend like a billion or like even more on those kinds of models, um, I'm, this is like a trend which I'm like deeply interested in. Just like I would like to learn more, just like how much are people like actually spending on the systems? Um, there's just a problem. We have like some ways of actually estimating how much compute they use in the training run. I still don't have the insight, just like how much compute they need in total for the whole development, right? This is like a silly question, which I'm gonna, I don't know like how much the computing resources they actually have. And my understanding right now is they're even competing internally for the computing resources because there's just a limited amount of chips, of AI chips, in the example of Google, of TPUs, on the example of OpenAI GPUs, they have available. And it's like a competition, right? Does like the next, does GPT-4 get like all of the GPUs or is it maybe DALI-3? Um, and those are like the open questions to me. And I expect before people start spending like billions or like 10 billions on single training one on these models, um, I guess they want to make some money out of it. And, and this, is, this is what we need to see within the next couple of years. Maybe it's happening right now where we see like the commercialization of those big AI models and, and see if you can actually make money out of it. I think, I, think, uh, I don't know. I, I don't see, like, you know, it's interesting because I saw a lot of charts in my reading and there were a number of, of sort of uh, uh, studies that you linked to that sort of started to get into diminishing returns. Um, you know, when you, when you increased, you know, beyond the like 10, 15, $20 million threshold. Um, but I mean, I think there's, there's definitely a world in which whatever new algorithm can be, you know, 20 X as good as the last one, if you give it a billion dollars worth of compute and right. sort of like, I think now that the importance and, and sort of potential of these models has, has been generated, it would not be particularly difficult to convince VCs or, you know, um, you know, a CEO of a public company or whatever, that this is something that their firm needs to take a big bet on. I did think it was really funny that um, uh, apparently Google, like, called some, like, uh, board meeting the week, you know, the emergency board meeting the week after um, uh, uh, GPT-3 was, was launched. I, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if uh, Sundar, after that meeting, was like, look, I got this. I'm just going to pour billions of dollars to, you know, blowing them out of the water. 
Yeah, I think going going back to this AI triad and the production function, what we still do yeah. not forget, it's not only not only compute, right? You cannot do AI models with only making them 10 million times bigger. You still need an algorithm. We have some algorithms. The neat thing we've been doing over years, like naively, we've just made models bigger, turns out they're better. But we also needed this more data. And I think that's like also one question which we're facing there. It's like, if you want to scale up a model 100x, you also need like... 50, 500x the amount of data. And this might actually also be a limitation because we cannot use any data, right? Do you, do you want to train your model on Reddit? Probably not. I'm not sure how useful it is. Or like maybe only certain parts of, Reddit, of the nice parts of Reddit or on Twitter or something. So there might actually be the case where you would like spend this little amount of money, but you don't have enough data to actually train those kinds of models. So you run into some kind of, yeah, you, you're running out of data literally. And I guess then it really depends on the domain. Um, and if it's like language or image and those kinds of things. Okay, so so question again, kind of drilling into the economics of this. So you can you can spend more on designing smarter algorithms. You can spend more on compute, and then on the compute side, you can spend more sort of brute forcing and getting more transistors. But you can also spend on on designing chips so that they're perfectly attuned to uh, the algorithm that you're you're trying to run. So so. How, Talk us through that dynamic. It gets more complex the more you dig into it in terms of the optimization cost if you're trying to uh, think about this economically. Right. Yeah. I think I think we now talked about like chips and compute, right? Um, and I think the more interesting dynamic is that like what kind of chips are out there? And what what I'm trying to draw here is something just like there's a spectrum around like chips which are like really general that can do like lots of stuff and chips which are really specialized. So if you think about general chips, this is a so-called CPU or central processing unit, right? This is what you have on your smartphone. You can do lots of different things from scrolling Instagram to jumping on video calls like this. Um, if you then move further across the spectrum, you have chips that are like kind of still general, but they're like for a certain task. And historically, we've seen something like a GPU, a graphics processing unit, which people came up with. Because what we're seeing basically when we calculating graphics, you do like you do to the pixels the same thing all over again. So it's like, well, let's just build a chip which does like lots of stuff in parallel. Right? And if you then move more further across the spectrum, we move to something what we call an ASIC, an application-specific integrated circuit. An ASIC is just like basically a chip designed for like a specific workload. It can only do one thing, but this thing like really, really well. Examples of this, this are your radio modem on your smartphone. It's like really, really well at like converting radio waves, like EM waves into digital signals. Or another example of this is like Bitcoin. We had like lots of dedicated chips for Bitcoin. All they were doing, they were like this Bitcoin mining to take one specific hash function and they're just recalculating over time. And if we move along the spectrum, right, the more specialized you get, the less general you are, right, but also the more efficient you get. And what we've seen with AI, basically, at some point people figured, well, we can use those GPUs because turns out training those AI algorithms is just like lots of metrics multiplication. So it's like sometimes people say it's embarrassingly parallel. And then they started using those GPUs and became way more efficient. And this is a good example where you basically were using chips which didn't have like more transistors or smaller transistors, maybe even like a bigger feature node, like even less transistors than your CPU. But turns out it's 10 to 100 times more efficient because you have a specialized architecture there. So we should not forget we have like this physical inspiration, right? We have just have Moore's Law, more, more transistors, more cores, all of those things. But actually, we can also move across the spectrum just like where we have like architectural innovation, right? And this is what we've seen. And this is also partially what kicked off like the emergence of machine learning. Like many people say the deep learning area started with LXNet, right? Deep learning, big networks means we need lots of compute. What they started doing there is starting to use those graphics processing units for this AI workloads, right? And lucky NVIDIA, they caught up on this and now they basically have chips which are not used for gaming anymore. They're actually just dedicated 
AI chips used for training those big models, right? And this is like a way how you can basically innovate without having putting more chips on the stuff, actually with architecture innovation. This is basically the algorithmic innovation on the compute level, right? And so is it, is it cheaper to or more efficient to innovate on in the chip level or uh, innovate in the algorithm level? Or, or what's the right way to think about that trade-off? Yeah, I think I cannot tell from the top of my head. I'm just like, it's like pretty, pretty hard. I mean, what we've seen on a chip level is just like, um, ideas are getting harder to find, right? We need to spend exponentially more money to get like smaller transistors. But it's like, it's turned out, it's been pretty good. And like, turns out the companies who did it have become like really rich on it. What we've seen historically, we've done both at the same time. Ideally, I have an architecture innovation and the transistors get smaller. Then I have a double win, right? And this is to some degree also what NVIDIA has been doing. They continue using smaller nodes, right? While TSMC, SML, all the others continue innovating, which is great for them. At the same time, NVIDIA, who doesn't make the transistor smaller, they just come up with like new architectures, which are more specialized towards like the workloads, in our case, machine learning training to leverage this. And then you have like this multiplication effect, right? You've got a better architecture, you've got better chips. And maybe one of this is going to like stop in the future, or it's just going to get harder to find. I guess like the same way how it's harder to make transistors smaller, it's harder to find like new architectural innovations, right? We've been all trying this for the last 10 years. And on, on the, the data aspect, you know, you mentioned the potential um, risk that we run out of uh, relevant data, um, which, you know, on, on the one hand, there's sort of an infinite amount of information in the world, but not all of it is is in, in data form that you can easily plug in and in ones and zeros. Um, but what's the right way to think about running out of data? It sort of seems like a, it seems like a implausible challenge to face given that, you know, our, our, our main uh, difficulty right now is, is making sense of all the data that exists in the world. Um, so how would you characterize the, the, the challenge and what's the first kind of limitation of data that we might actually end up yeah. bumping up against? I think, I think the first limitation is something like high quality data. Right. They're like, there's like, there's not an infinite amount of books out there in the world. Unfortunately not. Um, there's a limit to it. And like we feed surprisingly many into those systems, right? Um, ChatGPT, GPT-3 has read many, many, many books more than any of us combined could ever read within a lifetime. Um, and there's just a limit to it. So basically what you want to have is like more data efficiency, right? Turns out I haven't read 10 million books, but sometimes I can maybe reason, maybe as good as ChatGPT, maybe, I don't know, I haven't played around with that much of it. But it's like, there's like better data efficiency in humans, right? Compared to some other system where we need to just feed in like lots of images and it needs like to see a cat 10,000 times before it understands what a cat is. Um, and I think we, we're doing a better job there. So like this idea of just like, yeah, high quality data being out there is like actually like a bottleneck, right? Um, if I would only train kids on Reddit, Maybe Reddit is not a good example on 4chan, let's just say like something really terrible. Wouldn't turn out that like that not surprisingly smart actually turns out it would be pretty awful um, in, in reasoning and arguing and those kinds of things. Um, I can, yeah, maybe John can later link to this. We recently wrote a paper, I don't have the numbers on top of my head, which is like asking first, are we going to be running out of data where we try to make some estimates? Just like how much data is out there? How much data do we actually produce? Um, to get a handle on this. But this like looks in data in general. And I think what we're still lacking, there's like some good qualification of high quality data. Uh, I don't know, Chris, as like an author and academic, how has it felt playing with this stuff over the past few weeks? Uh, it's an interesting question. I, on the one hand, it's, it's, it's obviously kind of frightening because you know, all of the, the things that I do, uh, writing, it seems like uh, are, are now replicable in some ways. On the other hand, it's sort of reassuring because Although the results are really impressive, they're also really limited um, 
in in obvious ways. Uh, and so I'm I'm still not uh, I'm still not uh, deeply fearful that I'm going to be replaced by a computer uh, in the next decade or two. But uh, maybe by 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 2040 or so uh, that that moment will come. Um, if so, I can welcome an early retirement. I guess I don't know. Uh, that's that's the future we've all been hoping for. I guess. You're not excited to use it as a research tool. Um, I mean, like, I guess personally, it's just like I've had like some questions where Wikipedia didn't explain it well. And like, again, it's hard to know how much to trust it. Like, I really hope at at some point mm -hmm. they'll have like a confidence barometer or something alongside sort of like a like a, you know, like an ELO, like a like a win rate in like a football game or chess or something. But when we get that. Like being able, being able to like like as a learning tool, this stuff is just going to be amazing. So I think what's yeah, well, I think what's interesting though is that you know you, you said you you know how to trust Wikipedia, um, which is which is also interesting because ten years ago we would have said well Wikipedia is just you know articles populated by people like Jordan, totally untrustworthy, uh, and yet now we all rely on it and we have a pretty good sense of when it's when it's real and when it's when it's not trustworthy. So I, I think there's a, a learning aspect on our end that we're going to need to get comfortable with and we, we will over time. Yeah. Or just your students, you know, handing in essays they didn't write themselves. So maybe that's the thing you're going to be facing next. Are you going to do all oral exams? I think that's the only answer. <laughs> and, and not via Zoom too, because uh, those will be fakeable soon as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think like once it can figure out, because citations, that's what it's like. Like you can't write a paper it can't write a paper that can like trace knowledge back to the source yet. Um, and, but it will soon. Um, and it's going to be, you know, just what, what what's going to happen to education is going to be a really interesting thing. And again, I think there's like just so much upside here of, yeah. you know, giving better sort of more tailored instruction. Um, but you know, the, the, the evaluation methods that have worked for the past, I don't know, few thousand years are just not going to be functional anymore because but but i think it's it's good because we'll have to specialize on what we ought to specialize in which is thinking creative thinking rather than yeah. rote processes that we can train machines to do so i i have a question about kind of thinking about machines um and we have phrases like machine learning so i guess the concept of machines is built in there um but it seems to me that we haven't really come to terms with the extent to which data centers are in fact the factories of the future and all of the sort of, uh, and they're the machine tools of the 21st century, I guess, if you will, they're gonna do all of the, the work in producing new products for us. Um, mm. And so, so how would you think about sort of the economic um, impact of, not, not sort of the dollar and cents uh, uh, fashion, but, but so the, the work data centers will be doing in terms of the economy over the next half century and, and the role that they'll play. I, I, I guess I'm thinking like if, if, you know, River Rouge and Henry Ford was uh, the kind of the, the key production site of the 20th century, our data centers, the key production site of the 21st century. And, and how do we get our heads around that? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Yeah, I think, I think that's like the angle to think about AI as like a general purpose technology, right? And if we think about a general purpose technology, we have a couple of those. 
electricity, the steam engine, are some of them. And they're just like, yeah, can we imagine a world without them? Well, not anymore, right? Um, and I think we will might say face the same with AI. And as an underlying resource for AI, we face the same with compute. So compute might just become some kind of commodity or just like first like a critical infrastructure. Maybe a state will start thinking about its data centers the same way it thinks about its water treatment facilities, right? Um, I think those are like actually the ways how to think about it. And then just like, I, I once said something just like, maybe the next big inequality will be access to compute. Because like the access to compute means the access to AI systems. We just talked about it. Turns out they're like immensely helpful. And whoever has the most access to them um, has like, yeah, the lead on whatever, be it economically or, or in other domains, even science domains. Um, so seems really important to think about compute. So I, I, I like the analogy to infrastructure, but then I, I think, you know, is, it, is a data center really like water, water treatment? <laughs> and it seems like there's, there's a fair amount of simplicity in water treatment that we don't, <laughs> we don't have in data centers. Yeah. And so, I, so I, I guess that's part of the story, the infrastructure part, but it's, it's not just water treatment because it's not just the power going into the old factory. It's also the, the, the machine tools themselves and the, the hammering out of new equipment is, is sort of what, what, our, what our semiconductors and servers are doing in, in data centers as yeah. well. It's like a globally fungible good. It's also something that is on this like exponentially growing. Well, depends how exponential, but like it's something where, you know, I don't know how much I don't know what the like productivity increase of like electricity or water has been over the past yeah. few centuries. Um, um, yeah, no, I think just like I think like data centers are like, of course, way more complex than just like water treatment facilities. Right. I mean, like, Chris, you're the expert on this. Right. Just think about the whole geopolitics of this whole thing. Um, and there's like another way how to think about it. So there's like an OECD expert group, which is called OECD expert group on AI, compute and climate, which I'm part of. And they usually, there's like some slogan, which we usually say, there's like a compute divide within countries, but there's also a compute divide between countries, right? If we just think AI is going to be a powerful technology and computers is like really important input to the, to the AI technology, this compute device has like huge implications. And the best way how we currently see this playing out is the AI research field is like somewhat of a weird research field because we see industry labs leading there. This is historically not the case in a bunch of stuff, right? They didn't lead particle research or like fundamental physics research, but with machine learning research, turns out most of our powerful models are coming from OpenAI, DeepMind, Google, Big Tech, all of those organizations. And actually, um, this is what this computer divide refers to. If you look at the most powerful systems, None, like little of them are coming out of academia and it just gets worse every single day. And part of the reason, part of the explanation is probably this compute divide, right? Just like having access to those critical resources plays, plays a really important role, right? And to the same degree where you have like some factories, they didn't have access to electricity. Well, it turns out they're just like 100 times less productive then. So Leonard, what are the arguments uh, for and against spending federal money to give uh, university researchers and... I don't know, startups more, uh, or le less well-funded startups, uh, more access to this, uh, to this compute. Yeah, I think you, you're pointing to something which is like a big discussion in the US right now, which is called the, the NAIR, the National AI Research Resource, right? The NAIR has been called because like one of the motivations, what I just described, we have like this compute divide. And what the NAIR tries to do is just like try to give academics and maybe also startups or like other small businesses access to compute. Um, yeah, what are the arguments in favor of it? I think I just described it, right? To like participate at the frontier of machine learning research. If you think about creating systems, you need a lot of compute. Now it's already debatable, is this the frontier of ML research? There's like, there's like a reason why Google and all the others create systems because systems are the things which you eventually make money out of, right? 
academic incentives might be different. They just might actually play around just like understanding how the systems actually work, how are they reasoning, all those kinds of things. But on the other side, you might want to play around with those cutting edge systems to see how they actually work. So like for them to participate at the frontier of AI research, they need access to compute. Um, the problem is already just like, how do we give them access to compute? Um, I think it would just be wrong to just like, here's a big compute cluster, do whatever you do. There is, there is a, another difference compared to academia and like a single PhD student compared to OpenAI and Google. It's just like how the way they work, right? PhD students are often like this, the single person trying to do their project. And if they're not trying to train like a GPT-3 size models, they will face like lots of challenges because turns out you need to know lots of different disciplines to train those systems, right? It's become a big science to some degree. So you need your infrastructure engineer who helps you to deploy the model. But then you need this other person who constantly checks this training run if things are going well and if your GPUs are failing. Um, and then maybe you need another engineer who like actually deploys it efficiently and like can take it apart. So if like actually it's like more of a team effort. So this already just, just given and compute might not actually solve the problem. There's like way more to it. And then also the question like, how do you give them compute? Do you want to set up like another high performance cluster next to the university? Do you want to just give them money and they buy it from AWS, they buy it from uh, Amazon Web Service, or they might buy it from Microsoft Azure? Um, or does just everybody get like another computer under the desk? I think those are like the questions we still need to figure out, like what is the best way of actually giving them access to this compute so they actually are using it. And I think only, only compute is not the answer. There's like a bit more to it. There's like a whole engineering aspect to like deploying and running and training those big models for actually going about it. This might like be like a bit of argument against it, but almost like, well, actually we haven't figured out completely yet. I mean, I think the answer is you give them AWS credits, right? Like whatever federal version of AWS is going to be like bad and giving everyone an A100 under their desk doesn't solve the problem. So, um, right. Am I missing something? Maybe. I mean, I'm just like, if you, if you like, I mean, like, I kind of agree with just like, there's like this big worry for many people. It's like, oh gosh, a federal project. Like we, we have high performance clusters, right? And there's a reason why people sometimes like to go to AWS, Microsoft Azure, because they just work well. It's well-documented. You pay what you get for. They're just efficient. And we don't always have efficient systems within governmental systems, right? When a DOE runs something. Um, on the other side, as I just said, like if I just give you now the credits to train a system, you know, it's pretty hard. Uh, you need to get, ex like, you just need to know run those systems. And it's become its own science to deploy those large training runs because it's not, as you just said, it's not a single A100 under your desk you're running this on. We're talking about thousands of chips you're doing it. This is distributed computing. This is its own academic discipline to make this efficient. Again, if you don't make it fit not efficient, if you're just like, uh, you know, I don't care about optimization, you're like 10 times worse than you could be, which means you spend 10 times more money, which means you spend 10 million instead of 1 million. I guess your PI and it's not going to be that excited about it, right? So there's just like still this aspect where you probably need operational support for deploying those models. I think this is probably a thing which I would be excited about to just like not only give them the compute, you actually need to train them how to use it and help them along the way. Because this is the edge which OpenAI, DeepMind, and all the others have. Those are teams, teams with different disciplines, and everybody does their part of the, yeah, of the whole machine learning stack you eventually need to learn. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so what are the counter arguments to, to providing this type of um, this type of service? Yeah, um, let's just assume they're successful, right? If we give them enough compute, they're going to be creating powerful AI systems. Um, there, is, there is like this worry I've just talked about. Those systems get ever, ever more powerful, right? Um, and I think there's like an interesting discussion which started a couple of months ago so around the open sourcing of those systems, right? Stable Diffusion made like a lot of noise asking for the democratization of just like AI models. 
And I do think it's like actually a complex matter. Um, like I'm, I'm coming from an engineering discipline. I've been a huge fan of open source my whole lifetime. And now I'm like, I'm, I'm like advocating a bit against it. Where I'm just like, those systems in the future will be ever more powerful, ever more capable. And we shouldn't really think carefully about deploying them into the real world because they can do real harm via misuse. And this is basically what we need to consider with the NAIR, which is like, if academics are training those systems, current incentive systems are aligned this way, that you just want to migrate the best new powerful systems because you, you know, you get like the new benchmark and this probably gets you like a new NeurIPS publication. And they might just put it out there. And then what might happen, you have like a new really strong language model. Somebody might just misuse it for propaganda and other stuff. And it turns out that actually training the system is part of the hard thing, right? The reason I don't have my own GPT-3 is because I'm not smart enough and I don't have enough money, right? But if somebody would just not put it out there, the smartness required to actually deploy the systems like significantly less. And guess what? The money required to deploy them is also significantly less. And that's part of the reason why my colleague Marcus and me has been recently advocating to the narrative. It's like, maybe you should consider something what we call structured access. Instead of open sourcing those models, give a way for people to access those systems, to use those systems, but like in a safe and secure way. And an example of this would be via, for example, an API where I can, researchers can interface with this, but the model is not out there in the wild and everybody can just deploy it on the systems. And I think this is like exactly the thing which we need to look out for, it's just like the misuse of future ML systems. I'm not saying it's like a big danger right now, but I think we're getting some early hints at this with stable diffusion where it might be misused, right? But in the future, we should even consider it more if systems continue becoming, yeah, that powerful and that capable. We might not actually want them. Again, as a society, as a democratic process, we might not want them to be out there in the wild. Well, I, I guess that brings up the question of, of governance, of who decides and how those decisions are, are made. Is that a corporate decision? Are there, uh, are there new institutions set up? Is that governments deciding? Yeah, and I think I think this is exactly the discussion which NER, NER should be having. I think what not the answer is that the researcher who trained the model should decide. Actually, you might be arguing this is anti-democratic, right? Because it's not the population to decide, right? Um, so like actually having like a process, how we best go about it and how we basically balance the benefits and the downsides of those models, right? And like structured access is like one way how you might want to go about it, which brings you the benefits, but tries to minimize the downside risks. And I think this is just like, a really important thing to look out, yeah, if the systems become like stronger and stronger over time. Yeah. And this sort of brings us, um, this is my new game, is see how long I can do a show without bringing out China. We've made it to 36 minutes. Um, so this is the, um, uh, this is, uh, so this is where we get into this sort of competitive dynamics, right? Because um, I'm sure there will be researchers out there making the argument that, look, the more you try to, Shape, like, look, this is the new fire. The more you try to sort of shape and contain and, you know, have controls and like be careful or whatever, um, the easier it is for researchers who don't face those constraints to um, to progress ahead. And particularly when you when you have this sort of like open closed dynamic where uh, a more open system will have it where sort of a more open system will allow more people to sort of work on, iterate, progress it, um, you know, both on the you know, maybe harder to do it on the on the training side, but certainly on the inference side, um, you could see a universe in which this sort of thing allows um, uh, nations or researchers inside of nations who are less stressed out about uh, these sorts of things to um, to make up uh, to make up time and capability. Um, what generally is the right way to think about um, you know which parts of the triad? 
are easiest and hardest to diffuse. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's like a strong argument. Like again, like the triad, right? We have like algorithms, we have data, and we have compute. Let's just like try to work for them. If you look at data, is there's like actually open source data sets. So for example, if you look at the data set, which was trained on civil diffusion, it's not open source data set. You guys could be using it right now and anybody else in whatever country you want to name now. Um, if we look at algorithms, sometimes the same, right? And that's like, there's like a spectrum how you can publicize algorithms. You can just like not talk about them. You can write up a paper where you like kind of describe it, but the code is not open source. And the most extreme example is like, yep, the code is open source, here it is. This is the case for like lots of stuff in machine learning with all of the good benefits, right? All the benefits that TensorFlow, PyTorch, like those basic fundamental building blocks of machine learning systems are out there in the open source and that you can use them. Um, what those two things have in common, they are, they're digital, right? So if, if I would now head into your computer and you have a secret data set, I press Commando, Z, uh, Commando C, Commando V, here we go, I have it. Can you stop me from doing it? It's gonna be pretty hard, right? Because it's just like, I just created a copy. Um, so it's not a rivalrous good, actually, right? People can use it at the same time, multi-pendency. The same goes for algorithms, the same goes for data. That's a big exception for compute. If you're running an algorithm on your computer right now, I cannot use it. It's just like fundamental physical limits. There's a limit on how much algorithms can be run right now in the world, given on the amount of compute out there. So this makes compute actually like an interesting note because you can just not simply hack it and steal it. There's like some ways so you can technically hack a data center and you can run and train your system there. But what you should notice, because it turns out that actually drawing energy, your GPUs are at full utilization and you cannot run your system, right? Um, so I think it's like a neat way of like thinking about the diffusion. It's like, what is getting diffused anyways? This basically depends on the publication norms of researchers. Um, and also if you just think about like people hacking and stealing those kinds of algorithms, it's like really hard to prevent the hacking from data and algorithms. In particular, you know, like cybersecurity turns out it's a mess. Turns out usually you can hack into companies, even to the best secured ones. Seems really hard. I'm pretty excited about compute as the resource, which is like, you cannot digital steal. It's like, it's, it's a physical thing, right? And then, then not to forget next to like those fundamental compute properties, all of the properties of the supply chain of the state of the fairs, how, yeah, how everything is built up right now. But you can still steal physical things. It's just a little bit harder. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot on trying to talk about export controls. And mm -hmm. uh, of course, one of the uh, sort of like flagship pieces of uh, the Biden administration's export control regime is this um, uh, restriction of the highest performance compute uh, being able to be imported into China. So, um, uh, I mean, I think we've, we've, we've sort of covered pretty... Um, uh, pretty in depth on this show, the challenges that China will have to sort of domesticate uh, the manufacturer of those chips. However, you know, there are millions of H100 sold every year and uh, sort of in and kind of, uh, you know, diverting some of that supply down into, you know, some Guizhou server farm isn't the hardest thing in the world to do. Um, so I guess the question then, Leonard, is like, can you like, contraband your way into having enough compute to do things which aren't just you know the national security implication stuff of you know running having a thousand or two thousand gpus to model a nuclear weapon or whatever but um you know if we end up on a technological timeline where you need to run 500 million dollar billion dollar training runs um 
can kind of gaining access access to that compute in a sneaky way be um, be a potential solution for China? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, so turns out you need a lot of chips for this, right? So it's not about just like, I think it was recently in news where somebody tried to smuggle some chips into China with a fake baby bump. And they had like, I don't know, like 30 or 40 like Intel CPUs in there yeah, and but, some iPhones. This but was... that, 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 that story, that story is, it was misreported. That is like a- It was a misreported. Yeah, it was- it What's was, wrong about it? Well, because the Chinese government caught them. That was someone trying yeah. to evade import taxes. That's very different oh, yeah. than a state-run, oh, um, yeah. uh, you know, effort to like obtain strategic compute. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I think, indeed, just like the Chinese government reported this, right? I'm just like, it's saying like an example, just like, there's a limit to how many you can put in your baby bump. Like, assuming they would just go through, I don't know, the airport in San Francisco, the TSA there would just be like, okay, there's like a limit to how many A100s you can put in your backpack, right? But um, is there, I don't know, like, look, a lot of cocaine comes in and out of every country in the world. <laughs> like, 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 you can figure this out, especially if you're a nation state. I mean, but so I think that's the that's the wrong, I think, way to think about it. Um, OK, because, you know, it, you know, a, a thousand chips is not a data center make, nor does 10,000. Uh, there's a lot more that has to happen than just getting you know chips into a country. Um, and, and I think the interesting part of this is that uh, data centers are big buildings you can see from space. Uh, and, and the numbers that we're talking about are actually quite small. Um, and so it's it's a much more knowable problem, knowable question as to where are chips ending up or, or what chips are ending up in a given building uh, than right. you know tracking cocaine flows into the United States because the 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 cocaine ends up in a you know a million different consumers, whereas the chips end up in you know, I don't know a hundred different data centers. But yeah. it, it's it's a but it's it's like a it's like a real it's like. Goes for, it can go from narrow to wide to narrow, right? So you can have, you know, Intel selling it yeah. to 100 distributors, which then goes to, you know, 10,000 or 100,000 places. And even if it ends up in one place, it's like, okay, I guess, like, the Air Force can bomb it in a war. But, um, you know, if America wants to turn the lights out at these places, they can. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a, like it's like an Iranian, um, uh, you know, uh, centrifuge place. But um, I don't know if that necessarily solves the, solves the issue here, Chris. Well, I think in terms of understanding how things are entering China, let's say, and the networks that are delivering them, the fact that you've got a limited number of end customers makes the tracking problem a lot more durable uh, because you can, yeah, go ahead. Just, just in general, just like, so like, the, like maybe, maybe the big difference compared to cocaine is just like, you know, you, you guys heard about the semiconductor supply chain. Turns out it's really concentrated and really complex, right? Um, I, if, if I would be desiring to, to build cocaine, probably not here in Switzerland, but somewhere else, I could like probably get it done, right? Um, but actually like building A100s, I don't know, man. Like even at the, end of my, at the end of my lifetime, I don't get it done, right? I mean, you chatted a lot about just like building your own industry. Um, so what we eventually see, if you look at all NVIDIA GPUs or like even all NVIDIA A100s, uh, uh, Google GPUs or something, they're coming out of, for application users, they're coming out of TSMC, right? So maybe there's just like some way how you use like, normal supply chain tracking methods so just making sure where they end up and there's like there's like way less actors the market is like really concentrated which we should like actually look at so like i think the general norm is just something like it's hard to enforce this and we need to learn more how to actually enforce it and make those things successful right and like diverging 10 million chips is different than diverging 5,000 chips but maybe the 5,000 to 10,000 chips are like sufficient to training those systems and this is how you initially get started i think the more interesting dynamic here is just like 
you know, compute is not the thing. We're using compute right now, right? This call is running on some computer. I don't know where it is, but it's not at our home, right? Like also, but it's also running on a server. So actually you can be, let's just say China and train like a model on compute, which is sitting in Arizona via cloud computing, right? This is what we historically have seen. I think this is like also like opening up like this really interesting question. It's like, okay, cool. The chips do stop going to China, but how would we actually make sure they stop using those cutting edge systems, right? How can we make sure that in the future they're not going to be using AWS, Microsoft Azure compute? I think this opens up like a new complete domain of, yeah, like how do you want to, do you want to export controls cloud computing, right? Export control cloud computing from the US. And like, this is like an open question to me, how are we actually going to be going about this, like the whole cloud computing thing and making sure this compute does not get misused because Clearly, what are you going to be doing? Like, why is the reason if I want to, I don't have A100s at home, I use cloud computing because I don't have them at home. So why, why is not the Chinese government going to be doing the same in the future? Well, there's an interesting Chinese government policy decision as well as to what extent do you allow or not allow the transfer of relevant data abroad yeah. to do right. that. And I think what we historically have seen is just like they mostly use their own data centers, right, for data privacy reasons. And they will continue doing so because at the moment they still have their A100s. But if we like look five years into the future and they, they don't have the newest NVIDIA chips, the H100, there might be some desire to, to actually use our cloud computing technology. If Moore's laws continue, if the price performance continues to double like every two years, there, there is a strong desire to use new computing technologies and then actually just like yeah, accessing them via cloud computing legally or maybe you start setting up like some offshore entities which are registered wherever and then they're just like, right? And like, there's like lots of things we should then look at just like who, who's actually like the customer of AWS, right? Maybe they just want to implement like a really strong know your customer scheme. And I think already right now, they would not be allowed to give cloud computing to companies on the entity list, right? This is like, they're already forbidden there. Um, how do they enforce it? I, I actually don't know, um, but I guess they need to by the law, right? Well, and um, there are also, I think, we can fact check, fact check this maybe. I believe there are Alibaba cloud facilities outside of China, uh, which can legally, I think, the, and, and I believe they can legally buy controlled GPUs because they're outside of China. Yeah, I would be curious what the answers are and just like how we go about it. And it seems like an interesting field to, to assuming you, you're in favor of the exporter restrictions, which is debatable, um, those are the things you won't be looking at next. Yeah, two points. So first, um, I mean, the export controls explicitly do not prevent Chinese firms that aren't, you know, tied to the military industrial complex in a tight way to using server farms in Singapore. Um, like, un again, like, like, that would be a very tricky secondary sanction to enforce, but um, it's, it's still totally fine right now. The other interest, the other point, which I think is really interesting is, you know, we've seen in the past few months, um, NVIDIA and Jensen Huang, Jensen Huang basically saying, look, you know, our, our latest trip, like we retooled it and it's like 97% is good and uh, we're going to still, still sell it into China and we're not going to lose a lot of sales. But like exactly as you said, Leonard, like that's not going to cut it five years from now when the latest tech, you can't squeeze under um, uh squeeze under you know, the, the, the export regulations that were put up in 2022 um, in a way that will end up uh, satisfying customers and create sort of like globally competitive products. So if and when that happens, that's really when the rubber is going to hit the road on this. Um, and as Chinese firms more and more are going to be pushed out into um, wanting to uh, get their compute from outside of China for the latest, greatest, most efficient, sort of cheapest to um, cheapest to run um, uh, technology. Indeed. I think there's also just like this, this 
whole new notion where we just basically now think about like more like more compute means more responsibility, something along these lines, right? Actually, the one who's providing the compute now now needs to check what it's being used for. And this is just like, in my, my opinion, like a really interesting and important development, right? You've seen it over time where people are just like, oh, Facebook, it's just a software, you know? It's just a platform. There's like nothing wrong with it. But like the more we move, so I was like, well, actually, it turns out we should really think about this. It's more than just a platform. You're actually responsible what happens to our society because of this. I think now the next move is something along it's like, well, it turns out you're giving this literally just this compute, which can be used for many, many good things and for many, many bad things to somebody. You should bear responsibility on this, right? And just like really think deeply um, what they're going to be doing it. And like cloud providers are probably the next ones. Maybe like one example of this is when AWS decided to shut down Parler, right? Which was like this, face, uh, this Trump Facebook. They decided like, oh, actually, no, we, we're not doing this. This is not our type of platform. We're shutting it down. And this is an example where like somebody's providing compute and deciding like, well, actually, this, this is not what we want to com provide or compute for. And like, I'm pretty excited about like this general notion. It's like, yep, compute means responsibility. This is, this is just the case. This is the world in which you live in right now. You should bear the responsibility. You should think about it and actually implement, yeah, policies yeah. to make sure. So, so what are the other policy. examples we have of, besides Parler of, of that, um, that happening? Um, yeah. Does AWS have a, a content advisory board or something that, that tells them yeah. they do? They, like Silk Road. I don't know. Like, you're not running your direct platform on AWS, right? That's just the case. You know, like, I'm in Switzerland. They have, like, a bunch of data centers here in the bunker, and they just say, like, you know, lots of privacy. Well, it turns out they're running lots of Tor and dark web and big, like, illegal drug platforms, those kinds of things. If you think about illegal websites, AWS, Microsoft Azure are not hosting them, and they're checking on this, right, if you, like, actually violate um, their platforms. And I think just, like, yeah, drug markets are not the extreme example of this, but it's just, like, one example where just, like, people are not excited about, like, yep, nope, I don't want to affiliate with with them, right? But technically, you're just giving them flops, you know? That's yeah. all what I'm doing. I'm just giving them flops and some gigabytes. Turns out the flops and gigabytes is running, yeah, some some shady platform eventually. So you might see something around um, where just like, if you look at stable diffusion, right? No stable diffusion in the future might be misused for creating nudes or like deep fakes, right? We've seen this with like, where like images of people have been misused to create revenge porn or something along these lines. I would expect that AWS and others are not excited about hosting these. And I think they should not be hosting these, right? So those people should actually just not allow to deploy those models. And this is just an example of where somebody uses machine learning models, you need to deploy them on a web server to run them at scale and efficiently, right? But it's actually usage which you're not excited about. And this example is just like, yeah, we use stable diffusion to create like lots of nudes or deep nudes and deep fake videos, those kinds of stuff. Maybe there's an example where like AWS and Microsoft Azure in the future might be saying like, nope, this is against our content policy, which I would encourage them to do so. It's interesting because historically, well, historically, it's not really like the internet's that been around for that long, <laughs> but like, you know, the lower down the stack you go, the less folks have been stressed out about these sorts of things. And, you know, yeah. compute has been so far down, or like, you know, NVIDIA um, has, you know, had absolutely, like, not thought about this sort of thing at all. Um, and sort of the higher up you go and the closer you get to sort of interfacing with with um, people, the more the sort of like content policy stuff gets into um, uh, uh, comes yeah. into play. So so for like the recent history of the Internet, this has been the job of platform of, of consumer flashing platforms yeah. like Facebook, Google and, and Twitter to sort of draw the line and, you know, going down to like the cloud glares and AWS's of the world, you they for a long time have been able to sort of 
be like, look, like this is like basically the problem of everyone else and we're not going to stress out about it. Though, though increasingly, and I think like maybe like the Trump era was a bit of a turning point for this, um, sort of down stack became, you know, started to draw smaller, started to draw circles, which were smaller than what, you know, a Facebook or Twitter would be. But I remember like Cloudflare at one point was like, we're going to stop hosting like neo-Nazi, like KKK stuff. Um, but okay, once you do that, it's like, you know, there's, there's lots of other bad things and like, you have to rate things on the scale of bad. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe like, uh, you know, I, I don't know where NVIDIA is going to draw the line. Is it going to be like, you know, uh, nuclear bomb modeling? Are they just going to do WMDs for what they're not cool with? Um, I'd be surprised, frankly, if they, you know, figured out a way to like stop people from doing revenge porn, um, on, from a chip perspective it's gonna be hard right but it's been like a case of um well it's not impossible so i think like firstly there's like this notion it's like the higher on the stick you are the easier it's just like right like the more you can blame them whoever like if i'm just talking about this model well should i blame the cloud provider no i should actually blame the person who created this model but i just can't and i'm having a hard time enforcing this the reason why we moved down from the stack is because of enforcement It's like actually like, or like it's the only responsible actor along the chain. Turns out the only responsible actor along the chain is like the cloud computing provider, right? Um, and this is like an interesting notion. I think this is like in general my argument for compute. If we think we just talked about the infusion of algorithms and data, it's hard to enforce these types of stuff. But actually compute, we can enforce this, right? If you look at the current export controls, is there a desire to stop setting chips? No, that's not the fundamental goal. The fundamental goal is to make certain types of computationing not happening. So actually, if we could sell them chips, which just cross off all of the lists, which we don't want them to do, like as you just described, nuclear weapon modeling, this is what we would go for because NVIDIA still could get their money, you know, they're happy, whatever, all the good benefits of compute, but they don't do the nasty stuff. And maybe this is the world we're going to be moving in. And one example where we've seen this happening, and not because of social responsibility, is NVIDIA had a limiter on their GPUs for Ethereum mining. So they were just saying, like, if you buy our GPUs, you know, we don't want you to use them for Ethereum mining, even though they've been the best for Ethereum mining, just like the best type of GPU you can buy. Didn't people figure out how to hack that, though? Yeah, they eventually figured out how to hack it. But like, it's it's also like somewhat NVIDIA to blame, right? I mean, NVIDIA got hacked, this played a role into yeah. this. And there was another paper that just like released the driver, which disabled it, and then people figured it out how it actually works. But I think there's like an interesting example where you're just like, you're allowed to use our stuff, but actually you're only allowed to use it for stuff which we are excited yeah, about. I thought I... And I'm in general like, I'm not saying it's a solution, but maybe we should explore this more. And it's, it's going to be hard, right? The technical solution is like, what is a dangerous ML model? What is a good ML model? We don't know. We, we have like a hard time telling. Right? Yeah, this is why, um, you know, I, it was a very funny story because I remember like the GPU market for like gaming PCs was just like 10x what it was. And they were like, this was their PRs that yeah. they were like trying to like, you know, throw the gamers a bone or whatever. But, you know, it, it's it might actually be true. Yeah. But it's right. Well, well, don't you think so? I mean, yes and no. I don't know. There was there was some there was some debate. Uh, but more importantly, yeah. the, the idea of like the actual feasibility of putting dead man switches on AI hardware. If, you know, if, if all it takes is hacking NVIDIA, then NVIDIA is going to get hacked again. And like people are going to figure out how to, um, uh, how to use, uh, you know, use the really expensive hardware they bought to its, to, its, to its maximum potential, particularly if it's a state actor who wants to use it for some nefarious purpose. So, um, you know, I think I think I think all of us have reached the um, uh, our knowledge limits when talking about just how feasible um, uh, <laughs> dead man switches on you know AI chips in 2026 are going to be. But it's a really important and interesting question because Leonard, you're totally right in that 
that would actually kind of be the best thing for everyone is, uh, you know, you, you, you'd keep the Western firms getting money, you'd keep trying to depend on, on U.S. tech, um, and you'd just be able to sort of decide, eh, you guys aren't going to go there, but, like, everything else is cool. <laughs> um, and yeah. um, it would be nice if, you know, that came out of some DARPA lab in a way which... Um, it might be in the interesting of all actors, right, where you're just basically... you you. You want to provide assurances where they're just like, hey, you know what? Like, okay, we would like to get your GPUs, but we're not going to be using them for military purposes. And we can prove it. That's what we do. That's the reason why we do, like, nuclear verification and why we do inspection. It's like, hey, you know what? We would like to build a nuclear power plant, but not an atomic bomb. And it was just like, cool, yeah. Can we just come by, like, every, every half a year and just, like, check how it's going? Like, maybe we want the same here, right? But that's just, like, the technical problem of just, like, just running flops, running operations. It's hard to tell. Is this like a good operation? Is this a bad? It's just math eventually, right? How you use it, it's going to be like really hard to tell. But I'm excited about just like people exploring this server. I guess there are like some mechanisms around it. And there might be some high level mechanisms, which are something around like, well, at least it looks like you're not training a model, which is that big. Like you could be making an argument, which is like, oh, you're fine training like models, which are like GPT-3, but we don't want you to train GPT-5. And it's like one way how can I just check it. It's just like, yeah, it turns out your GPUs have been running for the last five months on one big training run. We're actually not excited about this. And I think this is like technical, maybe within the realm of the possibilities, which should be explored. I guess the, the, ch the challenge is that what we're talking about is actually making a general purpose technology, not general purpose. Or, yeah. and so, <laughs> in some ways, these are so powerful because of general purpose. It's not the first time, right? That makes it. <laughs> what's the yeah. right example? What's the, what's the kind of right historical example? I mean, nuclear I power. Right? I mean, that got sort of regulated out of existence. Um, I think, yeah, another way of thinking about it's like with nuclear power is just like, we're sometimes fine with uranium, but only enrich it to a certain level. Don't enrich it to nuclear bomb level, only enrich it to the level where you can use it for nuclear power plants. And I might make the same analogy just like here for GPUs. I'm just like, do you know, train your model, train your models, your machine learning models up to this degree, up to this size or something, up to this capability. But not further, because further we're like worried about misuse, misalignment, and all of those things you might be worried about with machine learning models. The analogy doesn't hold 100%, but I think it's like pointing towards something, which is just, just a challenge. It's something to, to figure out and to research, right? We should not give up, I guess. Well, one question that I, I put out was, um, are there, when we think about computing paradigms and algorithmic efficiency, are there any um, ideas that sound crazy today uh, but might be viable in 10 years' time that you mm -hmm. think are interesting for us to think about that could really change the way the dynamics we've discussed work? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, saying something about the future of computing is always fun. Right? <laughs> maybe maybe it's just like the base rate I'm claiming Moore's Law is going to continue and be true. It's like it's kind of fun in my engineering degree. It's become like somewhat of a norm that every professor, it's like within the first 10 sentences, they say what they think about Moore's Law, if it's true, broken or not. <laughs> become like somewhat of this meme in engineering, what they believe, and depending on which field they are in, they believe it or they don't believe it. Um, yeah, future computing paradigms. I'm like pretty excited about just like building on top of the existing semiconductor supply chain, like continue innovating there, right? This can be innovation on like the transistor level, right? Basically just look at the roadmaps of TSMC and the SML, but over just other stuff like in-memory computing is probably pretty interesting for machine learning stuff. Uh, 3D stacking of chips is interesting. And I think this whole general notion of just like building bigger computer clusters, just like how can we be doing distributed computing better? Turns out we need a lot of chips. There's a limit to um, yeah, yeah, how much our single chip can perform. So we just like distribute them, like build big clusters. Or maybe also companies like 
Cerebras, which is like trying to build like a way fast scale chip. I think it's like also a pretty exciting and uh, interesting technology. And this, yeah, maybe this is in five years from now, maybe in 10 years from now. I mean, they probably have like better timelines than this. Um, I think those are like in general, like interesting ideas. What I'm eventually like interested in is maybe not the single performance of a chip. What I'm eventually interested in is like the price performance. So like maybe another idea is just like, we currently have like those really short R&D cycles, right? And as we just discussed, you need to spend exponentially more to get like your transistor exponentially smaller um, or like get your computing performance. Like this might hit limits. And if we stop doing have like those really short R&D cycles, if like instead of your iPhone coming out every year, it comes out every three years, you might actually have like better economies of scale. So like while the performance per chip stays the same, you can make the chip smaller, like cheaper. So it turns out you basically have like better price performance. And like, if we go back to just like how much we want to spend on training a model, this is eventually the thing you then care about. And this is maybe something worth exploring. I like never really looked into this, but I would just expect instead of like the current crazy R&D we need to do every single year to continue innovating. If this becomes longer and you spend less money, we might just scale up facilities. We might just come up with more users or we have like a stronger pressure on algorithmic efficiency and like no new paradigms. Um, but there's like nothing which I'm betting on. Like if, if I learned one thing about technology, it's like, yeah, there are like some things which I'm more or less excited about, but it's like not the one thing which is going to solve it all or something which like needs to be figured out, I guess. Final question of that, that, that sparked back to the, the China export controls debate. Um, how would you assess this argument? Well, China can't access the most advanced GPUs, but it can just build very inefficient data centers using less advanced GPUs. Yeah, I, think, I think it's the thing you actually should be thinking about. And I'm like, I'm currently trying to look into this. I'm just like, can you just use like a GPU which is half as good, but you use two times as much? Is it just like, naively you could say it's like the same performance, right? But it's like this thing you have like sub-linear scaling, the more GPUs you use. So it's just like, it's the same when you work in a team. Do you rather hire two half-time people or one full-time person? Most people go for one full-time version because there's a limit in coordination. Turns out we humans are pretty bad at this. Computers are a bit better at this, but they're not perfect at this. So you don't have linear scaling. And I guess that's probably the thing you want to look into, right? Just like, turns out we need lots of communication with those GPUs. The performance doesn't scale linearly live with like the amount you have. So like you cannot just use double GPUs. And the other problems you're having, if our current progress in the hardware continues, again, exponential growth, you need to exponentially grow the number of chips, right? And I'd be surprised if you put, I don't know, 1 million chips in one data center right now and just like make them all work together. Well, if you solve the, if you solve this, the sort of communications problem that you discussed and got that to scale linearly, then it seems like, you know, Moore's law over, yeah, we're should be better. And, you know, at the rate of Moore's law over the next five years, you could brute force your way around the problem over, you know, over a 10 year time horizon. It gets... Yeah. I mean, the thing is just like, it's easier for TSMC to produce like double as much chips than just like continuing making the transistor smaller, right? So if we could just solve the communication problem, sure. Yeah, just turns out it's like actually really, really hard. I think the thing which I'm more interested in is more about, um, it turns out that our ML or machine learning algorithms need a lot of communication. What if we have like new algorithms which don't need this, right? Which are just like less communication heavy. And those are the things to look out for, right? There's like a couple of folks who are currently trying to like develop new algorithms to train systems decentralized, right? So like instead of using one data center, we use like five data centers spread around. Um, and I think this is something we should look out for. Uh, what are the algorithmic innovations along these lines? And this then actually informs it, right? It's, it's a thing. Like, well, let's see if, we, if we're going to be seeing this happening and what are the scalings to how many chips we can put in one place. Um, I don't know yet, but it's definitely on my radar.
Well, this was a treat. Um, for folks looking to learn more, I would recommend starting with SafeCon's AI Chips uh, Primer, uh, which was published in January 2020 at CSET, and then running through Leonard's uh, syllabus, which hopefully by the time we publish this will be available for the world to explore. Um, uh, uh, Leonard, you got a song for us? Um, um, I, gosh, there's nothing from the top of my head. I would be keen on you playing like another fun Chinese song. This, this has always been a treat when I listen to the podcast. So yeah, you pick John. Stand as I hope. 